If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to open them with me this morning to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, here in the new year we return to our study of this gospel, a study that we began way back in the month of May, last May, but we took a break for the four Sundays of Advent and then last week for the first Sunday of the new year. I guess it wasn't the new year last Sunday, but Ed got us ready for the new year. I'm excited to get back into the study of the Gospel of John, back into this account of the life of Jesus. It's a life account that I remind you, like the other Gospel accounts, it's, it's by no means an exhaustive account of everything that happened in the life of Jesus. It's an account that has a purpose, and John's purpose is stated very plainly. I've reminded you of it several times. But I will again this morning in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where he says, I write these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's what we're after, is seeing Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, sent for us, and that by believing in Him, we would have life in His name. And as we turn to chapter 9 today, picking up where we left off now back in November, Jesus' ministry moves, it shifts purposely towards the cross, and His ministry is now focused largely on those who believe. Now, all that I just said, obviously, uh, this is a book, this is a gospel account that focuses on the person and the work of Jesus of Nazareth. And yet, through his teaching, through some of the words that he speaks, through the wisdom that he gives, we often get more than just a picture of him, a picture of his biographical life. We get instruction on how the world works works, right? We get instruction on how God works, and in turn, we learn how we need to respond to who God is and how He works as His people. And today's passage begins with one such lesson. So this is a sermon less about the person of Jesus Christ and more about the wisdom of God's Word through our Savior. So we're going to read just the first five verses of John chapter 9. It's our tradition here at Ascension for you to stand for the reading of God's Word. If you're able, I invite you to do that. If not, just remain in your seats. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 
Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please go ahead and be seated. The works of God and those working the works. Those are the two concepts from this passage that I'd like to unpack for the next few minutes. And I am going to try to be briefer than normal. Two realities. A promise and an encouragement or an exhortation. A promise and an encouragement or an exhortation. Here's the promise. God is always at work in our suffering. God is always at work in our suffering. Our passage begins this morning not with a dramatic healing. We'll get to that craziness next week because it is crazy. But it begins with a theological question. A question that seeks to understand something that man has been trying to understand for generations upon generations, that we are still trying to understand in our lives. Why do certain people suffer as they do? And what is a good God's relationship to that suffering? And when you think about it, those are really good questions. Because they're, they're questions that are asked out of a worldview that refuses to believe that just we live in a world of chaos. That we live in a world of chance. And for us in this room, for a large measure of us in this room, this is not a theoretical question, is it? We've been asking this question, some of us, for the past two weeks. Why, Lord? She was only 65. She was seemingly healthy and vibrant. Why would you allow our dear brother to be without her? Well, those are questions that specifically I can't answer today or any day. But in God's providence, as we jump back into our study of the book of John, this interaction it does tell us something. It does bring help. It gives hope to hurting hearts. As we jump back into this account, Jesus and His disciples who are with Him, they pass by a man born blind from birth, John tells us. The disciples who are with him, again, assuming a world that is ordered by God and not by random chance, they ask a question that, at the end of the day, it was simply overly simplistic. The question specifically was this, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Their assumption was that there was a simple cause and effect relationship. Something caused this. Now, particularly among this group of people, the ancient Jewish people in this time and place, this was not 
all that uncommon. This kind of thinking. There was a line of rabbinic teaching that actually taught that it was possible to sin in the womb and therefore suffer in your life as a result. How that exactly happens, how that's actually determined, I don't know. But that was a line of rabbinic teaching. There was also uh, an idea that if a pregnant woman sinned herself, for instance, if a pregnant woman worshipped in a pagan temple, according to Jewish teaching, her baby could suffer as a result. What are we to think of this? Well, let me be clear. Suffering and death are a result of sin. War, violence, conflict, it's all sin. And if we want to zero in on somebody's sin, it's all because Adam sinned. Adam, our first parent. We live in a broken world because of the sinfulness that has entered our world, because of the sinfulness that exists in our own hearts. And as we're thinking about this scenario and these questions and what the disciples are seeing and even how we're interpreting them, we would also recognize that there are specific consequences to sin, right? For instance, if a woman is addicted to drugs while she is pregnant, we would say that's sinful, and we would also say that that pregnancy is going to result in a baby that suffers as a result of her decisions. But that's not the kind of relationship that the disciples are asking about here. We acknowledge that there's sin in the world. We acknowledge that there's brokenness in the world as a result of that sin. But these disciples, they're seeking to connect dots that can't be connected. In their ancient Jewish mindset and con, uh, context, they're expressing a, really we could say a familiar concept to our ears, expressed by a word that commonly gets thrown around these days, the word karma. Now karma is not a new word. Karma is actually an ancient religious concept that comes out of Hinduism, but in our day and age, it's become modernized. It's become popularized to describe the notion not of reincarnation, not of coming back as something better or something worse based upon what you did in a previous life, but we've come to understand it as you get what you give, right? In other words, the bad things that happen in our lives are probably your fault, we say things like, I wonder what he did to deserve that. If you remember the story of Job, this is where Job's friends eventually went. As they looked upon him, you must have done something, dude. See, Jesus cuts through all of this with an answer that focuses, and I'm going to make a really small nuance here, not on the reason or the cause behind this man's blindness and his suffering, but the purpose. An answer that acknowledges the complexity but doesn't, and doesn't remove all the questions, but it does declare that there is a sovereign God behind it. 
that the world is not a world of chaos. Jesus says specifically, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Well, the first question we ask is, well, what are the works of God? What does he mean, the works of God? Well, we could simply say the works of God are the redemptive purposes of God in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Redemptive purposes that all could be placed under the umbrella of his glory. For his glory. And his glory is wrapped up in the redemption of his people and the redemptive purposes of the lives of those around us. So what Jesus is saying is that this man isn't being punished, but that his suffering is being purposed. Romans 8.28, we know that For those who love God, all things work together for good. We've heard that before. Ephesians 1 teaches that all things happen according to the counsel of His will. You've heard these things before, friends. They're not platitudes. They are promises. They are rock-solid foundations. Even in the mystery that surrounds them. They are promises that give us a pair of glasses in which to view all of our pain and all of our suffering. Glasses that you need to put on and that you need to use. In other words, God is not punishing you. Karma is not at work in your life. But God is teaching you. God is growing you. Perhaps God is disciplining you. God is using your circumstances in the lives of others around you. Which is why Jesus' brother James says in James 1, Count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops stead, produces steadfastness. When we unpacked these verses years ago, the, the term that I used, which I think was taken from Paul Tripp, is the term uncomfortable grace. Right? This is uncomfortable grace. This entire notion that God works through our suffering, that we're supposed to consider it joy when we face trials, that's uncomfortable, but it is grace. And let me just add to that the fact that this is not, that God is not doing this in some standoffish way. As He's working in our suffering, you know what He's doing? He's grieving in our suffering. He's grieving that this is the way it is because this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not how He designed things to be. But He's not going to let things spin out of control. He's going to purpose them for His glory, for His redemptive purposes in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Now I already know that the the cynic the atheist, they object and they say, that is not any answer at all. You're giving nothing to this problem of pain, this problem of evil, this problem of suffering. And and I'd acknowledge that Jesus' answer doesn't satisfy every curiosity. It doesn't remove every question of our minds about why. But it does say something meaningful 
And what's the alternative? That there is no meaning. That there is no purpose. Or that everything that happens to you is the result of your own screw-ups? There's no hope in that. No, Jesus doesn't remove the mystery, but He does bring comfort. Reminding us that God works in our suffering. God brings glory and purpose in our pain. Even as He grieves with us that this is not the way it's supposed to be. One of the most beautiful ways this has been described is through the old hymn by William Cowper. God moves in mysterious ways. Some of you know that hymn. Let me read it to you if you don't. God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter and He will make it plain. Friends, be encouraged by this truth. He who keeps you neither slumbers nor sleeps ever. Not on the mountaintops of joy, not in the valleys of the shadow of death. You may not see how the broken pieces of this puzzle fit together, but rest assured they do. But there's also a challenge here from Jesus in verse 4, and I want to briefly end with this. Not only this wonderful promise that God is always at work in our suffering, but the challenge here in verse 4 is this. We must work the works of God. In response, we must work the works of God. Now rightly so, we can be a little skittish about the word work, not just because it brings to mind what's waiting for us on our desks tomorrow morning as we return to the workforce. But no, in speaking of our salvation, about the notion that we can contribute something to our salvation, right? We in the Reformed Church, we in this church, want to get away from that notion that we do anything to contribute to our salvation, and so I reaffirm, absolutely, by grace you have been saved through faith, not by your works, so that no one can boast. And yet, Jesus reminds us, He reminds His disciples, that in the existence of suffering, like they're gazing upon with this man, in the existence of suffering and evil in the world, it necessitates that we just don't sit idly by. Yes, we need to rest in the promise that God is at work, but that doesn't mean that we don't do anything. 
And Jesus emphasizes not only that, but he emphasizes that the window, the window is closing. Time is short. And when Jesus speaks here in these opening verses of the night that is coming, he's speaking of the own, of, of the extinguishing of his own light in his impending death. We'll talk more about that light next week, but for now, he essentially says, Jesus, this is, as long as I'm here, I'm going to shine. I am the light of the world. And in the same way, as he said in Matthew 5, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Philip didn't know I was going this this route. And yet he said the very same thing in his remark. So through this, we must work the works of God. And I think Jesus is saying two things, and this is where we'll end. Number one, be about my Father's work. As you work the works of God, be about my Father's work. Of course, this applies to all of our lives, right? To our chief end, which is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. As Paul said to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. So yes, I can watch my sports to the glory of God. You can play your video games to the glory of God. You can scroll social media to the glory of God. You can do those things. But even more than that, be about, make sure your life is characterized by His redemptive purposes and plans. Be about His worship. You're here today. Good job. Be about bearing the burdens of the saints. Be about the lost. Be about the suffering. Be about extending mercy in the name of Christ. Be about growing in holiness and reflecting Christ in all that you do. Be about God's redemptive purposes in your life and in the lives of those around you. Not just those solitary things that you can do to the glory of God. Absolutely. Jesus in the book of Matthew speaks about the mystery of the day and the hour of His coming, which no one knows. And He says this in Matthew 24, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom His Master has set over His household to find them food, their food at their proper time? Blessed is that servant whom His Master will find so doing when He comes. And the question is, the question I thought about this is, what do I want Jesus to find me doing? My answer is this. <laughs> this, is, this is the way I want Jesus to return, with me standing up here and you guys there, or us singing together. Wouldn't that be great? What do you want to be caught doing when the Master returns? Will that have anything to do with His redemptive purposes in your own life or in the lives of others? Be about your Father's work. But secondly, Jesus is also saying, as He exhorts us to work the works of God, He's reminding us that the time is short. Right? That's the other thing that He says here. The push behind all of this 
is because Jesus knew that his time was coming to an end. We need to recognize the same. Moses says in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Paul said to the Ephesian church, make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. An untimely death has this effect on all of us, doesn't it? None of us know. None of us know if we'll be here tomorrow. The time is short. Make the most of it. Jesus is reminding us not to fritter our lives away, self-focused and relaxed as if the clock isn't ticking, as if you've got all the time in the world and there isn't need all around you. Now hear me. I've talked about this before. Your soul can't carry and can't be burdened by everything. I'm not saying drive yourself into the ground. You need time alone. I need to watch a football game every once in a while. You need to disconnect. You need to recharge. We need these things. Jesus isn't giving you a burden that you can't carry though. As we sang earlier, He is inviting you to come rest in Him, rest in His purposes, and take His yoke upon you. It is a yoke, but it's easy. And it's a burden that's light because of who He is, because of what He's done, because of the fact that He's with you and He doesn't leave you alone. So brothers and sisters, as we start the new year with a vision, as you examine what your vision is for the new year, be working the works of God, whatever that looks like in your life. And remember as you do that He is always at work in your suffering. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this teaching, these promises from your word through the mouth of our Savior and through this interaction that he has with his followers. We admit we are like them. We have questions and we think we have answers. We think we know what you're going to say, but we don't. Father, you're not obligated to answer all of our questions and that And yet you give us something solid to stand on. You give us the ability to hope, to have peace, even in the midst of the pain, even in the midst of the suffering. And you give us purpose. But we need your grace. Because our hearts, my heart, so naturally turns inward as opposed to outward, focused on my God and my neighbor So Lord, we ask for Your presence. We ask for Your grace. Holy Spirit, do Your work in us through Your Word with Your promised presence by our side. This we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.